Would you open your Bible to Psalms 14 this morning? Psalms 14. I've been asked whenever someone heard what we were preaching on, they're like, what happened to some of the other ones? I mean, are we preaching all the way through? And I just want to say there's 150 psalms, so we're not going through every single one of them, so we won't be here for five years. Uh, So we're going to be jumping around through the psalms and going to uh, some of the most prominent psalms that uh, say something different than some of the last ones. So one we wanted to to work through was Psalms chapter 14. I want to begin this morning with a quote from Pastor James Montgomery Boyce regarding Psalms 14. He says this, Not many things in the Bible are said word for word more than once. If things are repeated, it's for emphasis. They are important. How then if they are repeated more than once? What if they are found three times? Well, this is the case with Psalms 14. Psalms 14 is repeated almost entirely in the book of Psalms itself. Psalms 53 is nearly an exact duplication. Then the most important part of Psalms 14 is repeated in the book of Romans 3. In fact, the first chapter of Romans is actually an explanation of Psalms 14. Pastor Boyce goes on to say, Anything that God says once demands attention. Anything he says twice demands our intent attention. And anything said three times, Pastor Boyce says, this demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. We find the words from Psalms 14 all over Scripture, and it's imperative we understand its meaning and how they apply to our lives today. So let's look in Psalms chapter 14. I'll read through the seven verses, and then we'll break these verses down. Beginning in verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understands, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship that we've been able to have, be able to worship you. God, I pray for the preaching and teaching of your word, that it may edify believers, may encourage and convict and confront, as your word says that it does. May it rebuke us in the areas where that needs to happen. May it encourage us. May it bring us into a closer relationship with you. God, we pray for those who have not come to know you as Lord and Savior, that through the power of your word, that you may bring them into a relationship with you. God, may you use the foolishness of preaching as your word says, to bring you honor and glory. God, we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beginning in verse 1, a few quick observations for us. Number one, the Bible is calling someone a name, a fool. We're going to look into that. Secondly, verse 1 says the word heart. 
And I know we've covered this in the past, but anytime the Bible is speaking of the heart, it's talking about the inner man, the core of who a man is. The essence of his decision-making comes from a man's heart. And this man is saying, in his heart, there is no God. This is what this fool, Scripture says, is saying. I want to look at this phrase, there is no God. Four Four words in our English language. We added the words in our English Bible, there is. The original Hebrew just had two words, and those two words would have been no God. That's it. So there was not there is. It just would have been the fool says in his heart, no God. And this would have been presented like no God for me, no God. Just a flat out no God. Leads to point number one this morning. The fool says no God. I want us to know this is not an intellectual statement. This is not the scripture condemning this man intellectually speaking. It's not like the atheist or the average Joe who doesn't believe in the Lord is the Bible. It's not saying that they are not intellectual, not that they're not smart. It's not like this person, the atheist, is saying something like this. I have pondered the morals of man, the existence of God, the existence of the universe, different religions and what they say. I've looked through all of those things and I've determined, I've come to the conclusion that there is no God. This is not what the fool is saying. The fool is saying, no God, no God for me. It's a practical statement. It's a statement regarding his personal attitude towards God, not an intellectual dilemma he has. It's his own heart, his motives, how he practically lives day by day is not, I've studied everything and came to the conclusion there is no God. It's no God for me because I don't want God. And we're going to look into some of this. God says that type of attitude, that type of ruling in your life is foolish and it makes you a fool. And we're going to look at why. Maybe some of you remember when you used to be a fool, according to the Bible. Maybe we still do foolish things, right? All of us foolish things. That doesn't necessarily mean we are a fool, and we're going to look at that. So verse 1, the fool says in his heart, no God. But a question you may be asking is, why does the Bible say that's a fool? I mean, how come Scripture doesn't say the uneducated man says in his heart, there is no God? Or the mistaken person says in his heart, there is no God. But instead, Scripture says the fool says in his heart there is no God. So why is someone who denies the existence of God a fool? We're going to look into that. Paul actually explains why in Romans chapter 1. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1, but keep a bookmark in Psalms 14. We're going, we're going to go between Romans 1 and Psalms 14 quite a bit. So keep tabs there. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look what Scripture says about this. Romans chapter 1 is actually, as you heard earlier, commentary on Psalms 14. And we're going to begin in verse 18. And we're going to go through verse 25. Verse 18. I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to go back and break down this text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his in, in, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resemble mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Later, scripture goes on and says in verses 24 to the end, how these men and women now live their lives. And if you read through that list, you'll see this is much how the world lives today. So why is it someone who denies the existence of God considered a fool? Well, look with me back in verse 18. And if you take notes in your Bible or highlight things, we're going to highlight some key words in this passage. So if you take notes, I encourage you to highlight these key words. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. It's not hidden. Scripture says the wrath of God is revealed. And who is it revealed to? Everyone. It says all ungodliness and unrighteous men. And then it goes on to say, men who, by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. In order to suppress something means you actually have it. Scripture's saying they have the truth and they suppress the truth because of their, what church? Wickedness, their unrighteousness. They suppress it. And so what actually Scripture is saying, what God is saying is unbelievers are not unbelievers because they don't believe in God. They're unbelievers because they do actually believe in God, but they just don't believe it. Make sense? We're going to work on it. Unbelievers are not simply unbelievers because they are unaware or uneducated about God. God says people are unbelievers because they don't believe what they already do know about God to be true. That's the nature of an unbeliever. This leads to point number two. Unbelievers reject what they do know about God. They know these things to be true, but they don't believe it. They want to unbelieve what they already believe to be true, naturally speaking. They want to unbelieve that. The problem is you can't unlearn something you know to be true. You can't just unlearn it. And that's what Scripture is saying is all men know God's existence, but they want to unbelieve that. So let's unpack this verse a little bit more. Look in verse 19. For what can be known about God is what? Plain. It's not hidden. It's plain. It's right out there. Why is it right out there? Scripture goes on to say in verse 19, because God has shown it. He's shown it to them. He's not hidden in a way. It says he actually has shown it to all of us. Verse 20. His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature. They've all been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, and this ties a nice bow on it here, the things that have been made, and then Scripture says, so they are without excuse. So this is God saying, everyone is without excuse because I've clearly shown myself to them in some form or fashion. They know about me. They are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, that's one of those highlight words, they knew God. So when you hear from somebody and they say, I don't believe in God, God is saying, no, they actually know me. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But 
They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became what, church? Fools. So there's the definition of what a fool is. Somebody who has the knowledge of who God is, but claims they don't. God says that's a fool. And you would say, I'm a fool. For instance, quick illustration here. What if I stood before all of you, and in a declarative manner, in an arrogant manner, I said this, church, I've come to the conclusion there's no such thing as words. I, I proved it. There is no such thing as words. They don't exist. Words are actually a myth. What would you say to that? It'd be foolish, right? Because I know words exist. Well, this is exactly like God is saying, listen, unbelievers, they do know about God. God has said very clearly, they know about me. They, they know something about me. Now, I'm not saying they know everything about God. I'm not saying they may not even know the books of the Bible. There's a lot of things about God they don't know, but God is saying they do know some things. And the things they do know about God, they've rejected those. And that is what is condemning them, that they've rejected the very thing that God has already shown them. So we need to understand when we're talking with somebody, and maybe you're thinking, well, listen, I have a I have a friend or I have a neighbor or I have a family member and they don't believe in God. And if I go tell them, listen, you actually do believe in God. All right. That that disagreement doesn't work well. This is for you to understand. This is not an an intellectual argument where you go to an unbeliever and say, you do believe in God. You just need to believe it. Okay, this is not how this works. This is for us to know that God says, listen, they do know about God and you need to use God's word. And you need to convict them. So what are some ways you can convict people with the word of God? Well, we go back to the Old Testament. We go to the Ten Commandments. Whether this is a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, but they're trying to follow the law, or this is an unbeliever. Listen, everyone knows in their hearts that they have broken God's law. And it's our job to use scripture to go back to that. You can ask them some simple questions. Hey, how good of a person do you think you are? Have you ever lied before? Let them, let them answer. Have you ever lied before? Oh, yeah, everyone's lied. Well, if I called, if, if I lied to you, what would you call me? Well, I'd probably call you a liar. So are you a liar? Oh, no, I'm not a liar. Well, how many times do you have to lie to make yourself a liar? Well, have you ever lusted before? Have you ever lusted at another woman, ever lusted at another man? Are you perfect in that area of your life? Well, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, 26 and 27, any man who looks upon another woman and lusts after her in his heart, has committed adultery. So scripture is very clearly saying, they don't even have to believe in scripture. I mean, I've talked with people, they don't even believe in God. You start going through the Ten Commandments, and they start, you're right, I am, I am a pretty bad person. Because naturally, I don't need to convince them God exists. They already know. So when we're talking with somebody, we're not supposed to try to convince them how many of you were intellectually wrangled into Christianity? I mean, I wasn't. It's not like you can convince somebody by winning a debate. God has already won that debate. It says in Romans 1, he's clearly shown them who he is. And it's our job to use scripture to call that out. So let's turn over back to Psalms 14, verse 1. Psalms 14, verse 1. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Verse 2, it goes on to say this. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Observation 1, no one understands. That's what we just heard. No one understands. Observation 2, no one seeks after God. Very clearly put there. Moving on to verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I know these are plain observations. I never said they were deep observations, okay? Observation three, none is righteous. None is righteous. Observation four, all have turned away and become corrupt. All have turned away and become corrupt. The last observation here from this passage, no one does good, not even one. This is repeated multiple times throughout Scripture, saying the condition of man are these things. No one does good, not even one. No one understands. Our natural state, Scripture saying, is one of unbelief. Our natural state isn't because we didn't know. It's because we actually did know and we chose not to do it. We knew better and thus we used to be fools. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, Scripture is saying you're a fool because you do know God exists. You do know there is right and wrong. If you don't believe in God, there is no such thing as right and wrong. So you have no appeal to say what is right or wrong at all. If you're ever talking to somebody and they say, well, there is no God. Where do they get a basis for anything in their life then? Any morals? I mean, somebody could come into their house and rob them, do horrible things to their family. And you can ask them, is that right or is that wrong? Well, that would be wrong based on what standard? It's always changing if we don't have a belief in God, but we do understand there is a right and there is a wrong because there is a God who's given us that ability. I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, and we're going to look. It's going to give us some insight into this matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, says this. Oh, wait, I still hear some pages turn. Thank you for turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I do want to say that. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Did you hear that? Scripture says no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God that's in us. It's not our foolish nature understanding the thoughts of God. It's actually the spiritual nature. On our own, we were fools, but now we can understand. Look in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but as believers, the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. See, it says interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Spiritual truths can't be given to fools because they don't want to hear it. This is what scripture is saying, that we understand things only by the spirit. Verse 13, the spiritual man is the one who interprets spiritual things. This is why before you try to convince someone who doesn't believe in God, 
Scripture, first they have to actually receive salvation. And how they receive salvation is first understanding their need for salvation. They first have to understand how broken and sinful of an individual they are before they come to the Lord. Why do I need to go see the doctor if I'm not sick? The problem is you need to show people they are sick. You are broken. You do have cancer. And when they get that realization, they do have something sick inside of them, a brokenness that they already know deep down. When you reveal that, they will run to the Savior. That is the gospel. That is how this thing works. And it's summarized in law to the proud, grace to the humble. We don't give the gospel to people who are proud and arrogant in their relationship to the Lord. If they're saying they have it all together, they don't need salvation, you can't bring that person into salvation because they they feel like they don't need it. Scripture goes on to share this. I want us to understand, so why is it important that we understand Psalms 14? I mean, why does this actually matter? Why is it important that the fool, that we know that the fool does know about God, but he rejects it? Well, here's why. And I want to touch base last week with my conversation with these Jehovah's Witnesses that showed up on my door and I had some conversation with them. This is why it matters. During my discussion with them, we arrived on the topic of heaven and hell. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. They believe in heaven, but they don't believe in a literal hell like we see in the Bible. They shared with me they don't believe in a place called hell because hell would be unfair. Since God is fair, they said, since God is fair and hell is unfair, therefore hell cannot exist. It would just simply be unfair. Well, to some, this sounds reasonable. And they also said, well, I, I just don't see how Satan would be rewarded. And listen to the theology here, because this is all over the place. They said, I don't see how Satan would be rewarded by people being sent to hell. It's almost like Satan's the one getting them and being rewarded rather than God. And the problem here, on a side note, is for us to all be aware that hell is not Satan's playground. It's not his. It's God's. God created it, right? He created heaven and hell for his purposes. He sent Satan there. It's not like Satan has his own domain that he created. It's almost like God and Satan are, are co-equal in this theology. And so I told him, listen, it's not, it's not Satan's hell. It's God's hell. God created heaven and hell. They're both his. He owns it all. Everything has been created by him and for him and through him as his word teaches. And I know for some of us that may be a new concept. We've never actually thought about it. We see how hell is portrayed on TV, you know, and that's not how the Bible portrays a place of hell. So how does my conversation with these Jehovah's Witnesses, heaven and hell, actually relate to Psalms 14 and Romans 1? We're almost there. Before we get there, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you remember Pastor Boyce, he talked about Romans 1 and Romans 3. And we're going to be in verse 10. 10 through 18. Beginning in verse 10, it says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sounds pretty similar to Psalms 14. So according to Psalms 14, Romans 1, and Romans 3, we really don't have that great of a foundation, do we? It says we're not righteous, none of us seek after God, no one does these things. Well, here's how my conversation with these Jehovah's Witnesses actually plays into Psalms 14, Romans 1, and 3. Our understanding of these passages show us, do we have any ability to shed light on what is right or wrong? Do we have any ability to say this is good or bad, fair or unfair? When we look at our track record, Psalms 14, Romans 1, Romans 3, it says none of us are qualified to do that. We're all broken. We're all unrighteous. We've all fallen short. We all run after our own hearts. No one does good. No one seeks after God. So I looked at these two Jehovah's Witnesses. I tried to plead with them because they said hell was unfair. And I said, who are we to say what is fair and unfair? If we believe these scriptures, the truth of the reality of it is, it's not hell that's unfair, it's heaven that's unfair. Because when you understand Psalms 14, Romans 1, and Romans 3, you get a clear perspective of who God is and who we are. And it's no longer, hell Hell is not a fair place. I told them, listen, it's not hell that's not fair, it's actually heaven that's not the fair place. We have a completely different perspective on what is fair and not fair because they think they're pretty good. They don't understand what Scripture actually says about us. I want us to quickly turn back to Psalms 14. hope you kept your place there. Psalms 14. I want to look at the last verse in Psalms 14. It says this, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. We see this salvation spoken of in Psalms 14 towards the end of Romans chapter 3. So turn back with me to Romans chapter 3. So scripture is just saying about salvation, hoping to come. The Old Testament was looking forward to the New Testament of salvation coming. And we see in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, salvation has come. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've clearly seen that this morning, right? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Verse 24, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus Christ stepped into the picture. This word propitiation, what that means is complete satisfaction of the wrath of God. Complete satisfaction. So we see Psalms 14, Romans 1, Romans 3, we've all fallen short. We've done this huge list of things. No one seeks after God. That was your heart, and that was my heart. 
But Jesus Christ steps in and he satisfied the wrath of God completely for us. This leads us to point number three. The gospel is not fair. It's not hell that's not fair. It's actually the gospel is not fair. And when you understand Psalms 14, Romans 1, and Romans 3, you see this perspective. It's not, punishment's not fair. Actually, that would be the fair thing to do. But God offered us, Jesus Christ, a propitiation, complete satisfaction for God's wrath that we deserved. He gave it to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to put it on the screens. I don't know of a more clear-cut verse in all the Bible that says how unfair this transaction was than this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have who we were, Psalms 14, Romans 1, and Romans 3. We see what Jesus Christ has done at the end of Romans 3. Now, Scripture talks about us seeking Him, actually being the righteousness of God. So I ended up sharing with these two Jehovah's Witnesses. The only thing that's unfair is that I'm not in hell right now. I want you to think about that. That would be the fair thing. That would be the fair thing for me. If God sent me to hell right now, for all the sins I've done and the sins that I knew were wrong, I still did, right? I mean, this is probably how all of us are, I would assume. I mean, we do things, we know they're wrong, we still do them, we still think them. So the fair thing would be for God to send me away. But that's not what God does. He actually offered us a gift of the gospel, a gift of Jesus Christ, a gift of satisfaction. A gift of joy that Jesus Christ took everything you deserved and made that transaction. That is the only thing that's unfair, is that we actually can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That we can be restored to the Father. That we get eternity in heaven with God face to face in a new heaven and a new earth. This is the gift of the gospel. Some of you this morning, maybe you need to step out and actually call upon the Lord. You've never done that in your whole life. Maybe you've sat in church, you know about God, you, you say you believe, but you've never really trusted in what he's done for you. You've never really understood yourself to be that broken of an individual, so you never really needed a savior. Scripture makes it very clear, we are all broken, we've all fallen so short. So I encourage you to trust and to call out. When we pray shortly, just spend some time with the Lord. Scripture very clearly says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the greatest transaction. This is, this is the greatest gift, and it's unfair that it has been offered to all of us. I heard from many of you last week regarding Jehovah's Witnesses and speaking to your neighbors and different type of theology. You didn't feel qualified to talk with people about these things because you, you don't know enough about the Bible or theology. And I just want to encourage you. If you understand some of the basics of our brokenness, our sinfulness, the gift of Jesus Christ, what he's done, and actually that this is all about God and his glory rather than our glory, if you understand some of those basics like we're talking about this morning, you can talk to anyone. And when you talk with them, that mindset, that heart, that humility of your speech and your language and your heart 
It doesn't mean you have to quote Bible verses on all these things. When you talk with them, and I talked to these couple of individuals, and I told them, listen, the only thing that's not fair is that I'm not in hell right now. Heaven is the thing that's not fair. What would be fair is hell. When I shared that with them, they looked at me like they had never heard that before. And, and they said, you know, I've, that's an interesting perspective. They said, I've never heard it put that way. And it wasn't about debating theology or, well, this is what my Bible translation says or this one. It was just revealing, listen, you know how broken you are. You know you don't deserve this and God has given this. And it was a complete, I don't know what the Lord has or hasn't done in their heart, but you could tell that was the first time they've heard something like that. So I just want to encourage you, as a believer, be passionate about sharing your faith. It doesn't mean you have to have it all together. That passion and that humility God will use in whatever conversation that you're in. It will reveal itself. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. We went from no longer seeking the Lord to where now it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. We went from not seeking the Lord to as believers. Now we can seek the Lord And it's not even just about seeking the Lord. It's actually seeking and now we can find him. Before no one did good and now we can actually do good. Before we were unrighteous and now through Jesus Christ we can have the righteousness of God. This is what's unfair. You know many times in our life we hear the phrase, well life's just not fair. And it's kind of put to us kind of as a downer. Maybe you didn't get something you asked for or your child's in the store and he's wanting a toy and you just tell him, well, life's not fair. Church, I want to encourage you next time you hear that phrase, I want you to praise God. I want you to stop and say, God, praise God that life's not fair. Because that's the truth of it. Life's not fair because we have been given the gospel and the gospel's unfair. Would you pray with me? God, we give you praise that the gospel is unfair. God, change our heart and our attitude. All over the world, I know other messages are being shared about a loving God couldn't allow people into hell. God, the truth of it is, that's where we deserve to go. A loving God allows us into heaven. God, the gospel is not fair, and we give you praise for that. It wasn't fair that Jesus Christ took on all of our sins, went through a horrible death, took on spiritual death in many ways, God, and we can now have a relationship, a restored relationship with you. God, I praise God that life is not fair. Help our perspectives be the right ones according to your word, that we are broken in so many ways. You have stepped into our life. You have radically changed our life. God, I pray for those who that hasn't happened yet, even sitting here this morning. God, I pray that the individuals who are here that need to call upon you, they need to get right with you, that they would call out to you right now and just say, God, please save me. I know I'm broken. Thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for when I did that many years ago. And you are continually breaking me daily and weekly of how unfair this thing is called the gospel. God, we give you praise for your love, for your grace.
for your goodness. God, we thank you for brothers and sisters that were able to sit here this morning and worship you in song and worship you in the reading and teaching of your word. God, I pray as we close this service that we may go out this week and that what we've heard this morning may have an impact on how we lead our families, at our workplace, and just our love and devotion to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.